From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Craig Moody, who is running for re-election to the Omaha Public Power District Board of Directors. I've always described Omaha, Omaha as malleable. If we lived in Chicago, I'd be you know, in a massive city and wouldn't really feel like I had the ability to affect change. But in Omaha, I really do. I understand the city, generally speaking. I think I know how it works. Uh, I can plug in in the places where I really want to affect change. Uh, Omaha is a place with great opportunity. We've made you know, substantial progress since I've been here, moved down here in about 2000. Uh, but there's still a ton of potential. And I get frustrated by missed opportunities as I look you know, to the future for Omaha, uh, and in particular, a climate-friendly future. To me, it's about capturing some of those opportunities. We talk about Moody's vision for an Omaha transitioning to renewable energy and Nebraska's coordinated plan to become net zero carbon by 2050. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. What are you doing on April 14th? Come out to the Council Bluffs Public Library Foundation Speaker Series, where I will be in conversation with author Eric Larson. Eric Larson is the author of eight books, six of which became New York Times bestsellers, including The Splendid and the Vile, The Devil in the White City, and his latest work is an audiobook called No One Goes Alone. Join me for an evening with Eric Larson in the Council Bluffs Public Library Speaker Series, April 14th at 7 o'clock. There's also a book signing after the event. Tickets are available now. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Craig Moody. Moody was elected to the Omaha Public Power District in 2016, served as board chair in 2020, and currently serves as the chair of the board's governance committee. He's currently running for re-election in order to continue his vision of Omaha's response to the climate crisis by transitioning to renewable energy and participating in Nebraska's coordinated plan to become net zero carbon by 2050. Here is our conversation. I want to start with your... I don't know if it's like a journey exactly, but I mean, what was a moment for you where you first sort of connected to nature in some kind of profound way? You know, if I if I'm honest, it probably goes back a long ways. And I wouldn't say it was a nature connection necessarily. But for me, it was uh, the ethos that my grandmother brought to the world. And it was out of frugality. Uh, You know, she was the kind of woman who saved all of the bread bags, and reused them. Uh, every door handle had no fewer than 70 rubber bands on it. You know, it was, she was just constantly saving and reusing and repurposing things. And so I think that that was kind of inside of me without me really knowing it. Um, and then I started to connect that ethos. The frugality has always been there, and my wife will tell you that it's probably not my best characteristic. Uh, but I started to really connect it with the environment. Um, honestly, it was Al Gore's movie. That, that triggered it for me. I was also, uh, I was employed at the Federal Reserve Bank as the facility manager. So I had, you know, first line of sight into all of the heat and electricity use and the waste and just there. So I connected some dots really, really quickly there. Um, but the journey, I think, like it was built into my core just being around my grandmother for many years. I wonder, that movie uh, seems like it both awakened people in good ways and bad ways because it also became uh, Al Gore became this symbol for a lot of people on the right, right. to sort of discount the whole uh, you know the whole I don't know if movement or even but just like a lot of the science itself because now it felt politicized because yep. it came out of Al Gore's mouth. Yeah, he he may not have been the best messenger, right? Like if if we would have had someone who wasn't politically affiliated, so to speak, it it may have resonated with more people. To be sure. Um, Trip to trigger for me, you yeah. know, for whatever reason, and and I've uh, been dialed on it ever since. So, like, were you terrified watching that movie then? Uh, I don't know that terrified is the right word, okay. but you know, uh, eyes wide open, jaw on the floor a little bit, yeah. and and that was before I had children too. So, um, I, I I don't think it hit me in a really meaningful way until I started to think about my children's future, uh, and um, and then you know, once I realized that. I have agency in this. You know, it's not a it's not an unsolvable problem. It's something that we can very much get dialed in on and, and affect change. That's really where I started to you know take a little bit more action. Well, so I mean, it, a lot of people today do talk about how 
they maybe don't have kids or are hesitant about having kids because of sure. the trajectory we seem to be on with climate collapse, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's crazy. It's, I, I come back to this on the show all the time, which is just like, are we doomed? Do you have hope? How do you how do you deal with that? I mean, so what what are some of your answers there? Well, we absolutely do. I mean, the 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 picture is not uh, bright. Uh, you know, the, the scientists have been telling us for many, many years, and and the picture is getting darker and darker because we're not taking the action that we should. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I understand how people can very quickly feel paralyzed by, uh, you know, being overwhelmed by it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say that my wife, the first, you know, back in August when the United Nations put out their most recent report, uh, you know, she 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 was paralyzed by it. She just you know, felt absolutely motivated and, and, and wanted to do something more meaningful than what we're already doing. Um, but she also, you know, was just overwhelmed by the magnitude of what needs to be done. And and it's an all-hands-on-deck sort of thing, honestly. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm working in a variety of different capacities to affect some of that change. And, and most of the change really has to happen at a system level. Uh, but, you know, each individual can take a variety of different actions that are going to have, in aggregate, some pretty meaningful difference as well. So it, it's a lot. And, and, you know, sometimes when we describe, when I describe to people, you know, from a sustainability and climate action standpoint, the reality is pretty much every decision you make every day has consequences, right? What you eat, the clothes you put on, how you get to work, um, what you do for a living. I mean, every one of those has consequences. And so, when you really start to break it down in that way, it can be it can be both overwhelming because there's so much, but it could also help you get focused on things that are actually a little bit, you know, adjacent possible where you can just affect change tomorrow when you wake up. So when you started to think like that, what were some of the first changes? How did you start to change your own lifestyle and then be able to maybe inspire others? Um, the, there are a few things that I think stand out for me. Uh, one one is I. I, I found a found a good partner and we started a business to help, you know, really large organizations do it. So that that's one. Uh, but on a more personal level, uh, the way I the way I get around uh, it's transportation is a big one for me. Um, I, I don't bike and walk everywhere. I'm not I'm, I'm not uh, able to do that, but I do as often as I can. Uh, and man, the days when I do get to do it, I really, really enjoy it. It's just a, a feeling of freedom and exhilaration that you don't get when you, you know, you hop in your car every day. So transportation's a big one for me. Uh, we've done, you know, almost everything that we can to our house to make it more energy efficient. We haven't gone renewable uh, yet, but that's on the list. Uh, and then uh, the the other two that I would mention, we've really tightened up our outgoing waste streams. So we're we've been participating in the city of Omaha's energy bag program for quite some time. And that's made a huge difference in, in, in minimizing how much waste we send to the landfill and also our diets. Uh, you know, we, we, we've really pivoted our diet uh, for, you know, my wife and our two kids to be very climate friendly. Uh, and, Oh, by the way, it's really, really healthy, too, which has been a nice little benefit as well. Well, I, I talked to uh, Gus Van Roon about uh, yards and yeah. grass, and I, I feel myself uh, – I feel guilty almost for having some grass in my yard. Uh, but then also my fiance, <laughs> I think, does not want to have just like a complete prairie yeah. uh, everywhere. So, I mean, how, how do you balance even something like that where it's just like maybe rewilding elements of the yard or reincorporating, yep. uh, you know, native plants? Is that something you do as well? Absolutely, yeah. We, we just – We've we've gardened for a long time. Uh, originally, the garden was in our neighbor's plot, so we kind of came together. She had a really good sunny spot, so we said, "Let's do it together." Uh, we've since it was actually it was a pandemic. We're bored. What else can we do? So we added three really good sized uh, raised beds to our backyard. Um, but we've got turf grass up front as well, and it's the place where the kids play soccer and tag and do all of those things. And so you know, there's a, there's a purpose for some of that stuff. Um, and, and then the question, I guess, for us really becomes how do you maintain it and manage it, right? And we haven't put chemicals on our lawn for 15 years. Um, I used to use a real mower, you know, the old school 1950s mechanical one that didn't have any uh, – but that just didn't quite do the job. So I, I've got an electric mower that I use that's corded. Um, so it's – you know, it it doesn't have to be, you know – 
the whole enchilada on everything, right? Like find the things that you can do that you're comfortable with that don't have, you know, a negative consequence on your life. And in fact, in most cases, the things that we've done in our yard, to use your example, we've got a butterfly garden, we, we've got raised beds. Now we're, we're eating fresh fruits or excuse me, fresh, fresh vegetables. So like there are some pretty significant benefits that we get as a result of those. It's not all sacrifice. It's not all wearing a sweater and turning the thermostat down. Well, another question that I have that comes up all the time on this show is for those goals that you have, it seems like in some ways Nebraska and Omaha are not the most obvious place to live and try to inspire people because sometimes people can be stubborn. They can get stuck in the politics of it. So, I mean, why why Omaha? Well, I didn't move to Omaha because I saw a need to affect climate change. I was here. You know, I graduated mm-hmm. from school and moved down here and, and worked at uh, the Federal Reserve Bank for eight years. And so uh, I migrated to this after being in Omaha and after falling in love with Omaha. Uh, and so now, you know, honestly, for me, one of the things that I think uh, I've always described Omaha, Omaha as malleable. If I were, If we lived in Chicago, I'd be just kind of, you know, in a massive city and wouldn't really feel like I had the ability to affect change. But in Omaha, I really do. Uh, I, I, I understand the city. I know how, generally speaking, I think I know how it works. Uh, I can plug in in the places where I really want to affect change. Uh, Omaha is a place with great opportunity. We've made you know substantial progress since I've been here. Moved down here in about 2000. Uh, but there's still a ton of potential, you know, and and I get frustrated by missed opportunities. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, as I look, you know, to the future for Omaha, uh, and in particular, a climate-friendly future. To me, it's about capturing some of those opportunities. That's funny. Malleable is not a word I would generally think of yeah. associated with Omaha. Yeah. Um, it seems like a lot of people, it's difficult for them to conceive of doing things differently. And I think some of the sustainability measures are good examples of that, right? Like, I, uh, I also use the energy bags. Uh, I have a compost section. I have a glass section. And right. I had, we had friends over for dinner like a month ago. And he said, I'm not like I can't see myself having six different trash cans. It's too complicated. Yeah. Something like that where it's really not that complicated. Mm-hmm. You get used to it pretty quickly. But, you know, in terms of malleability, I don't know. Sometimes the culture feels stuck just because we're comfortable with it, not necessarily because there's a lot of logic behind it. Yeah. Is that been uh, I don't know. Do you, do you find that Omaha ultimately maybe is easier to change than you'd think like than the stereotype might be? Uh, well, I don't know that it's any more stuck in its ways than anywhere else, honestly. I mean, I, I, bet, I bet you if we were in other communities, certainly some are going to be more nimble and faster moving than others, to be sure. But, you know, when I think about Omaha, I, I, I do think that, that there have been some pretty meaningful changes over the years. And, and, and in particular, I think, you know, when I think about kind of what's happening now and what's afoot, um, I'm really excited about the transportation future in Omaha, uh, the extent to which and the way in which the Omaha Chamber is really dialed in on, you know, the future of transportation in this community is is a really significant event. Uh, you know, we are a business-driven community. I, I don't think there's any arguing with that. And so when, when you see the Chamber get focused on something like that, that's a pretty strong signal that we're going to make something happen. And um, I know a little bit about kind of the folks that are working on that, the data they have and the direction they're going. And it's all good. It's all positive. It's going to take time. I mean, it, it still is going to require some investments. Uh, one of the fun debates that I had uh, recently as it relates to transportation is, are people willing to shift their habits only because there's a carrot or is, does there need to be a little bit of a stick, right? And some of those communities, and I'll use Minneapolis as an example many years ago, uh, one of the one of the most important things when voters would go to the polls in Minneapolis at one time 15 years ago was transportation, transportation, transportation. And that was because they were constantly stuck in traffic. It was the stick. Uh, and so, you know, we've always prided ourselves on being a 20-minute city here in Omaha. So I, I do think that without that pain, it's a little bit harder to really make an abrupt or a quick and, and a productive shift. Uh, it's going to take a little bit longer. But I do like what the vision is. Uh, especially as it relates to transportation. Do so you, you think there's a future where you don't have to have a car and you can live in Omaha? Well, I think, I, yes, I do. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the infrastructure that we have and that we build, right? So it's how are we using our land and, and, and is it dense and mixed use? Uh, it's also what's in the street, right? And and are we are the streets just only for automobiles or are they are they created in a way that allows for, you know, bikes, um, and then it's, you know, that mixed use part is also about 
connectivity to jobs. And that's really what the chamber was interested in, right, is they've heard story after story after story of employers who, you know, find some land and they build a building. And and then it's only after they can't find employees uh, uh, where they say, why doesn't transit run out to my location? I said, well, you you didn't think about that when you were actually thinking about location and hiring people. You you made that decision on where you located based on different criteria. So a lot of it is about, you know, creating an environment that's conducive to that. And I, I think there are some parts of town that are getting there. Um, and, and I think, you know, with, with things like whether a hot potato or not, things like the streetcar is going to drive more dense development. And, and so then the question becomes affordability for those places. Can people uh, afford to live in those places? A lot of times people who, you know, the job connections that we described earlier, uh, that's often people who can't afford to have a car, right? And it's not a, it's not a choice. They just can't afford it. Um, and so, you know, how are we connecting those those people to the jobs that they want and making sure that it's it's a healthy environment all the way around? If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with OPPD Director Craig Moody, who is currently running for re-election to continue his vision of an Omaha that takes tangible steps to address the climate crisis. What do you want to see Omaha do to address the climate crisis? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. And so when you had your sort of moment where you felt like you needed to make a change and jump into sustainability in some kind of professional sense, you started a sustainability consulting firm, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you know how to do that? Like, what was the process of like, (laughs) how how do you make that leap? I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, there was a little bit of an element of leap of faith to it, to be sure. You know, and this is in 2008 and nine when we were we were looking at doing it. And I um, there's nothing that will drive you to start your own business uh, quite like being in a job that you don't like. And I was just in a job that I wasn't particularly fond of at that time. And and uh, and so. I really wanted to pivot towards something that was going to be, uh, you know, focused on climate in some way, shape, or form. And and uh, fortunately, I found the right business partner. More than anything, uh, my business partner Daniel Lossie and I just offset one another in really perfect ways. Uh, I am, you know, I come from a business background. I've got an, I've got an MBA, and so I was really focused on, you know, the business case of everything. Uh, he's a theology undergrad with a master's in community regional planning and a focus in sustainability. Early on, I always described him as the guy in the green cape. Like he's he was really living it and doing it. And so once we came together, we just kind of offset one another in really good ways. Um, you know, I, I won't tell many clients this, but I, I have no actual training in the consulting that we do. It, it's very much learned on the job, on the fly, soaking up every kind of resource that I can. You know, when I went to college, there were no courses in sustainability at all where I went to school. Today, they have a PhD, a master's, and several undergrads that are focused on sustainability. So it was, you know, I mean, so I have training in how to write a business plan. And so that was at least the thing that I brought to the table. And then a lot of it just became, you know, how can we create something that's going to, you know, solve this problem? I think, honestly, I think we're a little bit ahead of our time in terms of creating a purpose-driven organization that's really more focused on stakeholder capitalism than shareholder capitalism. Uh, and and then we got kind of fortunate with the first client out of the gate, and I think it was off to the races from there. Who was your first client? Omaha Public Schools. Yeah, we, we, we originally thought it was going to be uh, – residential work, doing home energy audits. And then we literally thought we were going to buy a van and have like all of the insulation and the caulk equipment and go in, do the energy audit, and then go to the van and get the stuff. And then actually, it was such a terrible idea. Uh, But then we pivoted to, okay, well, that's not going to work. That's too much driving around. Let's do, you know, small businesses. And that wasn't going to work either. And, you know, once we really started to think about it, and, and again, honestly, through a variety of different connections that we had, it, it became clear that, you know, there was a possibility for us to do some work for OPS. It was all grant funded. So OPS was was like, sure, let's do this. Um, and I think that was a really, really clear sign for us that the larger the organization, the better the fit. And it also was a clear connection that the larger the organization, the bigger their environmental footprint as well, which is really what we were focused on 
on solving was minimizing those big environmental footprints. Well, I would imagine that's also got to scratch the itch of there's a lot of influence of a lot of young people who are sort of establishing their relationship with sustainability, yeah. and you get to have some impact on that. Yeah, the ripple effects were super exciting. So yeah, what, was, were, what were the changes then? Like, what did OPS do? Well, we put together uh, a big plan for them, and, and one of the biggest key outcomes from that was a lighting retrofit. Uh, they, the, there were inefficient lights in, in most of their buildings, and so we identified that. And, and long story short, we put together uh, essentially a program where they could, over the course of several years, get all of those retrofitted uh, with new lights. They went out then and got a grant to do that, so the ROI was instantaneous. Uh, and um, there were multiple other different things that the district did as a result of that. But that was really kind of like that was that was the big thing that came out of it was like this is instant. This is we can do this. We can do it now. Uh, there were all sorts of funds available to do it. That was kind of when uh, era funding was coming down from the federal government, um, you know, after the recession in 2008. So uh, everything really kind of synced up pretty nicely. And so that probably gave you then. Uh, some knowledge for how to apply that to Omaha in broader ways, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. So, so what were some of the other things that you were able to impact in Omaha? Well, the next client for us was the Nebraska Medical Center. So we, you know, our first two clients were two of the largest employers in the city. Uh, and again, we just felt unbelievably fortunate to be working with both of those two entities. Uh, and, and it's kind of snowballed from there. A lot of our clients are some of the largest organizations uh, in town. Um, you know, a, a lot of what our focus was we were getting hired mostly because they saw uh, our work connecting to energy conservation, thereby connecting to saving money. Mm-hmm. That was the motivation in most cases, or at least the key driving motivation. And, and the environmental benefits were you know, secondary, and they were there, but it wasn't the reason why we were getting hired. Um, that changed over time. You know, uh, In particular, I remember conversations at the Med Center where we said, yes, we can help you solve that problem. But there's a bunch more to do here, and, and here's the case for why. And it didn't take but three months before that, that switch got flipped. Um, and it's just night and day difference now, right? Like the, the motivations today are so dramatically different than what the motivations were back in, you know, 2009, 2010. Well, I mean, so when was the point then where you go from that business perspective to actually being a part of OPPD, being a part of the city itself? I mean, I was always – what I would call a troublemaking do-gooder. What does that uh, mean? Well, f- for me, I-, I think the first time where I really got dialed in on affecting change at sort of a policy or a system level was uh, back in 2012 when the city of Omaha was considering and the city council was considering uh, its equal employment ordinance, which would protect protect the GLBT community from discrimination and employment. Um, me and a group of other Troublemaking do-gooders uh, got organized, and we lobbied the city council. And and and, and I, we we could have a whole separate conversation about that, honestly. But but the end the end outcome was a four to three vote in favor, whereas a year before it was a four to three vote against. So we 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 were super enthused that we were able to make that shift and make that change happen. And I think that's really where I got pretty excited about navigating politics and policy and decision makers in that way. Well, like when you say troublemakings, I mean, you're good at annoying people into listening to in you? In some ways, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, it, yeah, I, I guess when I use that term, I'm talking about, you know, the troublemaking really is about, you know, standing there with the bullhorn and rallying people on the street, you know, and it's leading rallies and it's 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 being kind of that public voice of of angst uh, in some ways that that I took on at that time. Uh, for a do-gooding outcome, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it very much was born out of, you know, and I wasn't an insider back then. Uh, I was I was much younger, right, uh, 10 years ago, and I didn't know how the city worked. I didn't have access to the decision makers in the room. I wasn't, you know, to use Hamilton, I wasn't in the room where it happened. I was on the outside looking in. And so the only way to affect change was to rally a whole bunch of people with me. And, and sometimes when you do that, you got to ruffle a couple feathers. And so um, I probably had a, 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 had a little bit of a reputation as somebody who, you know, wasn't particularly productive in that way. But it was what I knew, and it was the only way that I could affect change. It's different today, you know, like that's that's where I got started. Um, and, and fast forward to the OPPD decision, you know, for me, that was 
uh, a reflection on the amount of time and energy and um, you know heartache that goes into affecting the decision of one policymaker. It's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And writing letters and rallying people takes a lot of time, and it's really, really hard. And you're trying to influence one person sometimes. And I, I had this realization that rather than do that, maybe it's better to just become that decision maker and make better decisions. Right. Uh, so that was kind of a realization where now the time and energy that goes into a campaign is a whole nother thing. So maybe it, it was it was a net negative uh, in the long run, but that was really kind of the calculus for me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of people, unless you have a lot of exposure to uh, elected officials or it's maybe like in your family or social circle or you come from that kind of level of influence, it's easy to feel like there's something special about everybody who's ever been elected that makes them like a different class of yeah. whether it's qualification, knowledge, et cetera. And it does seem like once you kind of get exposure to a lot of those people, it's like, oh, not necessarily. Just, they're just, yeah, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Right. Yeah. So when you decide to do this, though, it's got to be also a little bit overwhelming to figure out, okay, how do I get elected, right? Oh, yeah. So what was that process? Well, uh, it was trial by fire. I mean, I had no I had no idea what I was getting into. And, and I'll be honest, in some ways, I was probably undersold on it a little bit and just just how much time and energy and, you know, what the resources required to do it were. Um, I'm super competitive, uh, which suits me well sometimes, but not all the time. And, and, and when it comes to a campaign, part of what I really got motivated by was not only just the desire to win, uh, but to also do it and do it really well. Like I didn't just want to win a campaign. I wanted to run a really good campaign. Uh, and so for that, for me, what that meant was being probably more intimately involved in all of the details that I really needed to be. Uh, so it, it was, it was hard, man. I tell you what, it, it was, it was long nights. It, it was, uh, you know, one of the things that I tell people a lot about campaigns is that, the candidate is often the loneliest person in the room, even though they're surrounded by people constantly. It just that I, the feeling of isolation that you have when you're a candidate is is pretty stark. Uh, and, um, but I don't regret it for a minute. You know, it was it was exhilarating. It was fun. I learned a lot. Um, it, it 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 brought me to people that I never would have met otherwise. So, like you know, on the whole, it was a really positive experience. But don't let anybody ever tell you that it's easy. Yeah. Well, it's, I imagine it's difficult as well in some sense because not a lot of people give as much attention to down-ballot races right. as they should. Right. Uh, a lot of the time it's just sort of like, A, if you're going to run for something, it's yeah. got to be one of the big ones or else why do it, right? And then the yeah. other one is I imagine you had to sort of explain a lot about OPPD oh, no doubt. to people. Yeah. Oh, the, I mean, knocking on doors, there were – you know, it was not uncommon for me to tell somebody I'm, you know, I'm running for the Omaha Public Power District and they said, we elect those people? <laughs> right. Really? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it was equal parts education, right? And 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 then the other part was, you know, convincing uh, somebody that I was worthy of their vote. And so you won. I did. And you got in there. What was it like? Uh, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, but I really, really enjoy it. Um, I, I think one of the things that's noteworthy about the OPPD board in particular is when I got elected in 2016 – uh, there were two of us that were newly elected to the board, and since then, uh, us included, seven of the eight positions on the board have turned over. New people have been elected, so there are, there's a lot of new people that are on the board. And early on, uh, you know, I think I think there's a pretty big difference between kind of how I navigated the board early on and how I navigate it now, which is to say I didn't know what I was doing early on in terms of how to affect change, right? I was... I asked a lot of questions, which I think was good, um, but I, I pushed in ways that probably wasn't. Um, I didn't really have a good understanding for, you know, governance. And, and now I'm a governance geek. Like, I just <laughs> love talking about governance. I think it's sexy as hell. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't know what my role was. I didn't really understand this is my lane. And in particular, you know, what is the board's role? What is my role as an individual director? What is the CEO's role and how do those two things intersect? How do they differ? Um, I understand that now, and it's a lot easier to navigate and really affect change in that way. Um, before I got elected, I remember thinking almost every vote was on the board was 8 
And I remember thinking as an outsider, how could that possibly be that there's that much consensus that nobody is ever voting against anything? And but once I got in there, uh, I, over time, I realized that once it gets to the board level for for voting, not just discussion, but for voting, there's been months and months and months of discussion, debate, deliberation, data analysis. Like there's so much that just gets built into that decision that by the time it gets to a vote, all of the kinks have been worked out. And and so it it's not like, you know, the Unicam where you can, you know, regularly see votes down party lines. In some ways, honestly, I don't know the parties of all of my colleagues on the board. I don't care. We're pretty focused on, you know, the mission of the organization and doing what's right. And so now that I've been doing it for a while, like I said, the governance of it is is part of what I'm really focused on is that just making sure from a cohesive standpoint we're we're aligned in terms of what our how to make how we make decisions is something that is really, really important. I'm talking with OPPD Director Craig Moody, who is currently running for re-election to continue his vision of an Omaha that takes tangible steps to address the climate crisis. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. You're in the theater. The lights go down. The sound rolls. Maybe you're taking in a big, spectacle action movie. Or maybe it's a rom-com. Don't you get it? I love you, you dummy. Or maybe it's a blood-soaked slasher. But no matter the genre, you're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she stand up to her? Oh, good God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If this bad rom-com boyfriend reminds me of my own boyfriend, does that mean we should break up? We never know when we'll see ourselves in a movie, but that process of discovery is exactly what we're going to talk about on the podcast Feeling Seen with me, your host, Jordan Cruciola. Each episode, we will bring in a guest from in and around film, the ones who make it, the ones who write about it, and the ones who just love it, and find out when they first saw themselves on screen. And because that's not always the case for everybody, we want to hear stories, too, from people who had to stitch together composite images of themselves because they didn't see a true version of who they are reflected on celluloid. So join me every Thursday starting November 11th for the Feeling Seen podcast here on Maximum Fun. Follow us, subscribe, do whatever you have to do to make sure you'll be the first to know when the show launches. We're going to laugh, we're probably going to cry, and hopefully we're going to learn a lot. Not just about the guests on the show, but about ourselves as we listen to the stories they tell. Hey Tom, Sarah Johnson here. I just saw your tweet about the role of Omaha City Council and I thought it would be a good opportunity to plug our Thursday evening Council Club Zoom meeting where we talk about what the City Council does on a weekly basis. So I just didn't know if you would have any interest in talking more about that. But what we have basically realized is the City Council acts as a rubber stamp. Sometimes there's discussion, but even after there are questions or pushback or straight up calling things bad plans, it's still usually a 7-0 approval vote. So uh, at this point in time, data shows that they are a rubber stamp for whatever comes through the mayor's desk. So anyway, just wanted to share my feelings with you. Thanks for all you do, buddy. Talk to you later. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Please leave us a review while you're there. I'm talking with OPPD Director Craig Moody, who is currently running for re-election to continue his vision of an Omaha that takes tangible steps to address the climate crisis. Here's the rest of our conversation. So for you to get in there and not know exactly what all the roles are on the board, let's clarify that for anyone listening who probably also doesn't really know what those roles are. Right. Well... To me, what I would hold up is probably the most critical role of the board uh, is to set the vision for the organization. Where do we want to go? Uh, And the way that we articulate that is that we have a suite of 15 policies that we call strategic directives. And those 
cover you know 15 different topics that range from uh, you know safety, reliability, affordability, pricing, um, you know customer service, risk, you name it. Uh, and so those 15 policies essentially are the board's articulation of where we want to go. If we get those right, then and they're clear to all involved, then they send a really clear and important communication to the CEO, to the CEO's team, and to the rest of the organization for where do we want to go? Where are we headed? Um, there are other policies that make a really big impact on how we communicate with one another and what our decision making. So to your question about like what are the board roles, there's we have documents that spell out in bullets in very specific detail this, this is our role. Um, but those strategic directives are, are the thing that I come back to as a board member on a regular basis. That's really how we affect change. That's how we affect policy. We set rates, so that's the other thing that I think is really important for us to own as a board. We hire the CEO, which is really important. Um, but when it comes to you know, the day-to-day decisions, that's not us. Uh, that's that's the CEO's job. And so it really does, it's this balance between the board setting the vision, clearly communicating that vision, and then, and then if we do that well, our job over time then becomes holding the CEO and the organization accountable for migrating towards that vision. Um, but we don't get, we, we, we should not get involved in the details for the most part. We need information and data to do our jobs to make good decisions when it comes to the day-to-day run of the organization, that is not our job at all. So it might be too big of a question, but I mean, what is broadly the vision of OPBD right now, or at least the vision you're bringing to it? Yeah, it, well, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll say this, it is dramatically different than what it is today. You know, uh, you know the, the historical definition of what an electric utility looked like was centralized generation, right? Big power plants located in a handful of different places, and then wires that connect everything and move the electricity around. Like at its core, that's really what it was. And then we needed something at the end of the line to measure how much was used. And then we needed that data to charge people for their kilowatt hours, right? And the business model was set up in such a way where we were, utilities were gaining revenue based on the cost per kilowatt hour. It was a variable rate, right? The future is not that at all. The future goes from centralized generation to decentralized. It's your house, it's my house, it's businesses, it's it's you know it's primarily it's it's almost exclusively renewables uh, deployed all over the service territory. Uh, it's advanced metering technology so that um, you know it, not just in terms of where the generation happens, but at, at commercial or residential, so that we can see and, and moderate the demand so that the demand matches the supply rather than always generating to meet the demand. Um, it's customers having, you know, a pretty high level of choice, uh, having a lot of the resources on their property, so to speak, right? So solar on the roof and an el- a couple electric vehicles in the garage. Um, it's, it's just totally different. And one of the things that, that is, I think, an interesting question to explore it is the old model from a revenue standpoint dependent upon us selling kilowatt hours. In the new model, where it's all decentralized, you and I are generating most of our needs on our roofs. Uh, and so what is the model for the business, you know, from a bit, just from a pure business model standpoint, what does that look like for utility into the future? And I think that to me is a really important question that I don't think has a ton of clear answers to yet. Uh, the vision for what it looks like is pretty clear, but exactly what the business model is, is one that I think uh, requires some further deliberation and discussion to really figure that out. And so, I mean, has I assume that's shifted as well as just the general sort of like climate action plan and all of that over the last few years. So between your first term and this new term, what are some of the things that you want to bring to your second term? Well, I would differentiate it in, in I think, one meaningful way. I think my first term felt like we were shifting the vision of the organization uh, and refining it. It wasn't wholesale change, but it was, you know, moving the ship a little bit and pointing it in a slightly different direction. So it was a lot of visioning and planning. I think this next six years and forward is really about execution. You know, uh, the district is in the process of constructing two pretty good sized natural gas facilities. It's in the process of trying to add four to 600 megawatts of solar. 
you know, advanced metering technology is on the horizon. There's still a, a nuclear plant that's getting decommissioned that requires a lot of time, energy, and resources. So a lot of it for me is about how do we meet all of these needs? How do we maintain reliability? How do we maintain affordability while we have to continue to invest in some of these things? It's, I think the vision is sound. And, 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 and so for me, it's really about successfully executing on some of these really significant projects that are in front of us and making sure that we are also thinking about once these big projects are done, what's the next wave, right? Because there's more to do uh, in, in striving towards our 2050 decarbonization goal. Uh, but these projects that are underway right now are are massive uh, and are going to be really important to keep an eye on. So to decarbonize by 2050, does that mean pretty much every roof has solar panels and there's just sort of like windmills everywhere? Or what it, does it look like? Yeah, it's I mean, that's to be determined. I mean, it, it's I think the reality is um, so much is going to change between now and 2050. The technologies are going to change. Who knows what's going to happen with nuclear? There's just there's a I think we've got a pretty clear vision for what's going to happen between now and 2030. There are a lot of what we would call no regrets things that we can do that are going to work out. Uh, after that, it gets a little bit more murky. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it is distributed solar. Uh, it's batteries. It's electric vehicles. Um, it, it's, it's advanced metering so that, you know, it, it can all be managed in a, in a successful, healthy way to maintain reliability and affordability. Um, but exactly what that looks like and exactly when it happens uh, is still kind of part of what needs to be figured out. And, and it's, it's not as though there's a point at which we're going to arrive on a date and say, okay, that, that path is clear and the plan is set and now it's just execution. Rather, it, it's, it's constantly making one decision after the next that are on that pathway. Uh, so uh, uh, one of my favorite authors um, – Aaron Dignan wrote, wrote a book called Brave New Work, and there's a, there's a sentence in there that I come back to as it relates to plans in particular for utilities, which goes something like, um, in an increasingly complex world, plans are nothing more than lies committed to paper. And that might be a stretch too far, but I think the sentiment is right, which is, man, things are changing way too fast for us to know what's going to happen in you know, the 2030s, let alone in the next five years. So part of what I think is important on the part of board members is is being nimble and agile and thinking about the criticality of the decisions in the moment and how they fit within the bigger, broader picture for what that vision is. And so, I mean, I guess that I understand how it's a lot of moving parts and it's a lot of sort of uh, adjustments you have to make for just people's daily lives and there's a lot of money going around. But, I mean, one of the concerns a lot of people bring up is that net negative now is a lot better than net negative or net net uh to to be a net zero now would be yep. a lot better but net negative is really kind of like then the next step right after getting to uh zero carbon emissions mm-hmm. zero net carbon emissions so i mean how much of that is playing into the overall vision for the future where is it sort of like we get to net uh, we get to uh net zero, then have to figure out how to go negative and just kind of keep going with that? Is it a concern of it being sort of like a too little too late by 2050? I mean, how much of that is sort of just, you know, in the conversations that are happening? Uh, I, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, I mean, really what you're talking about is, is um, organizations that are pursuing a regenerative policy, mm-hmm. right? So in other words, historically in the past, what we've been doing is, is, degrading the planet, right? And and so I think there's an acknowledgement that's growing that not only do we have to get to sort of equilibrium, right? Like this net zero idea, but in fact, we should be giving back. Uh, we should be regenerative in our policies and our decisions. I can't say that, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, right? I, I can't speak for the board. Um, I'm, I'm but one director. So disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, but it, that's certainly on my mind is, is can, can we pursue a business model that's net positive. Um, exactly what that looks like really is unclear. Um, there's no doubt that the science is telling us that we've got to hit some targets, right? And so that's in the back of my mind. You know, there's a 2030, 50% reduction that, that science is saying this is what we need to do in order to, you know, mitigate the worst of it. And then there's the 2050 goal to get to zero. Um, as far as I'm concerned, f- certainly from an environmental standpoint, the faster the better. Uh, but this is this is where the balance comes in. This is where, you know, we need to maintain reliability. We need to maintain resiliency. I mean, if you think about the last year and the significance of the storms that we've experienced, 
tornadoes in Iowa just a week ago, you know, a couple of weeks ago. The world around us has changed in such a significant way uh, where we need to build a system that is resilient to all of those things, too. So you, you got to it goes back to those 15 strategic directives that I described earlier. It can't be. Yes, we need to elevate the environmental side of this because I would suggest many, many years ago it was largely ignored. All due respect to my predecessors. Uh, so it's being elevated in terms of, you know, the, the center that it holds, but it's not the only thing. We've got to figure out a way to balance all of those needs in some way. And I think we can do it, uh, but it, it just it, – it takes time. It takes energy. It takes the right policies. It takes leadership. There's just a lot that has to happen and come together in order for us to make that transition. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with OPPD Director Craig Moody, who's currently running for re-election. What do you want to see Omaha do to address the climate crisis? Join the conversation on social media. Give us your ideas. Call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. So one of the biggest things I imagine that's going to happen in the coming years is just getting more people to have solar panels on their houses, right? Yeah. And I talked a little bit about this with Eric Williams, but I mean, it's one of those things where I've thought about it. It sounds like you're thinking about it, maybe trying to figure it out even for your own house, right? So I mean, like, how do people start? What's what's that even look like to get to the point where, okay, I know how to even do that, get it hooked up, figure out how to pay for it, not get ripped off? Yeah, the the market needs to grow, I mean, is the short answer. And I think it's it's going to grow and it is growing. I I, I listened to your conversation with Eric and and as he pointed out, the demand uh, for solar applications that OPPD is seeing is just through the roof, right? So the demand is there, and it's just going to continue to go up. And so in some ways, you know, we, we, that is not the kind of thing that we want people to just kind of figure out on their own. It's not a bootstrap situation. That, that, that is, those are expensive panels that are generating electricity that need to be tied into your panel. Like that's not something you do on a, on a random Saturday afternoon by yourself. You hire experts to do that. You hire experts to map the whole thing out. So to me, and perhaps I'm biased because my life is consulting, but you – and this is not something we would do, but you need an expert in the door. And and I think fortunately that market is growing and growing really quick where people and, – and there's there, there are resources on OPPD's website where you can better understand. And I think if it's not established today, it will be soon. OPPD is establishing a trade ally program uh, wherein OPPD kind of works with vendors who are – I'd say vetted uh, to be kind of reliable partners to do some of this work. So the district is in some ways kind of helping to hold up those that, you know, the district knows are doing really good work. So there's, there's like a path to making it easy for people then. That's sure. Being established. Yeah. I mean, it, every roof is different, right. And uh, for the most part, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, we don't, the last thing we wanted, these are the soft costs. Right. And, and our board does talk about soft costs for stuff like this pretty frequently where we want to minimize, you know, the deliberation, the discussion, you know, the red tape. And we want the soft costs to go away so that really what people just need to do is is kind of walk through a fairly simple couple couple steps and, and get it done. So you're currently campaigning. We've talked about a broad array of topics here. What else haven't we talked about that you want to make sure people know about your vision for reelection? Uh, uh, boy, I don't know that there's anything that stands out. Like I said, I I think what I what I would say is uh, I was on a two-hour finance committee for OPPD call the other day, and we were going through some really detailed stuff. Um, and the subject matter is not necessarily important, but my realization at the end of it, when I just you know had a splitting headache because it was just like really intense stuff to focus on, my realization was. This is a really critical time for a utility. Uh, it provides an immensely critical service to over 800,000 people. And the complexity of what's happening and the scale of what's happening uh, with just this you know, public power utility is really immense. And um, I think it's really important that the people who serve on that board know what they're doing, that they understand it, that they – know what goes into making the decisions, that they understand the risks that, that are presented. Um, it, 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 is, it is a board that I, I do think, and I think we are there now. I think our board is extraordinarily knowledge, knowledgeable and engaged in the work that they do. 
And I think maintaining that is super, super critical for all of those positions. And I, I think that probably holds true for many of the elected positions, right? It's not something that I would encourage anybody to just do because they feel like they want to be elected someday. Uh, part of what I think is great about OPPD's board is that the people that are on that board really know their stuff and they can ask better questions and they can make better decisions in that case. So as we, as I talked about earlier, as we transition from vision and planning to execution, um, having people on that board that really know their stuff is going to be pretty important. So the you who saw an inconvenient truth and got freaked out yeah. and felt like you needed to change your life, do you, <laughs> do you feel like uh, you've done enough? Are you, are you, no, uh, are you satisfied? Gotta, no, i got a lot of work to do, man. I, it's Every once in a while, I do kind of look in the mirror and think I could, I, you know, if anybody should be doing as much as they can, it should be me, right? But I also think that there's a lot in life that people need to navigate, and and the world is complicated, and, you know, we're, we're watching a war unfold in the Ukraine. There's just so much that people need to digest, and that goes for me as well, you know? So, no, I'm not there. I'm not even close. I've got a lot to do. What's uh, next on the list? Do. Well, I'm still driving around a 2008 Prius, and I'm uh, I want I I want an electric vehicle at some point, but it's paid off. I don't have any car payments at all, so I'm waiting for it to die before I get an electric vehicle. That's that's probably the short term priority for me. Okay, yeah, then uh, you know, get rid of some grass at some point. Are you, are you well? I gotta let the kids grow up first because I don't <laughs> want to take their soccer field just yet. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've got your campaign, which I imagine it ha- is doing a lot to try to uh, educate people about what OPPD is, yep. what it does, uh, and then just the issues that you care about. So where should people go if they want to learn more about you specifically or just whatever OPPD is up to? Well, craigmoody.org is is my website uh, where there's a little bit of information about who I am and what I do and, you know, the quote-unquote resume is out there. And I'm building out a blog, so that's a place where I'm sharing stuff. I've got Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Instagram as well, and those are all linked from the website. Uh, OPPD, though, is, is uh, OPPDcommunityconnect.com is a really good place to see, not only see what's happening with OPPD and what the big projects are, but to also engage with and, and affect the decisions of people like me. Uh, that's been a big priority for me ever since I joined the board was making sure that OPPD was doing a really good job of engaging it, its customer owners in decision making. And so that OPPD Community Connect page is a great place for people to to see what's going on, to read it, uh, to digest it, to watch a video, and then to weigh in and, and kind of provide some guidance and advice to you know, all of the decision makers for what they want out of their public utility. Well, this has been really exciting for me to get to know more about the board between talking to you and Eric and then just to get to know you more today. So thanks for being here today, Craig. You bet. It was a pleasure. Riverside Chats is a production of KUS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>